Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. All-star closer, Kenley Jansen, we have a question. What's the best podcast of all time? Baseball isn't boring, baby. I'm Rob Bradford, and every single day I'm sitting down with the biggest names to show you this great game is the greatest game. It's my podcast. It's my passion. It's a cause I started more than two years ago and is now the most prolific national daily baseball pod there is. Another fact. So jump aboard the B.I.B. Express. Follow and listen to Baseball Isn't Boring, presented by Wasabi Hot Cloud Storage on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. 97.1 FM Talk. Podcast. Thursday evening as we get ready for Fish Fry Fridays. We cannot wait to do the show live at Incarnate Word Parish in Chesterfield tomorrow, 3 to 6 p.m. The Fish Fry officially starts at 4, but we might Yum. let you take a peek and watch the uh, the show. Yeah, that that's the thing. We're kind of underselling the food portion of this for our our team because we do love food, yes, right? Yes, we do. And we love good fish fries. That's we 100% had, We had a lot of... Uh, a lot of uh, variety, I would say, in all the fish fries. They're all a little different. Yeah, fairness, and that's right? what the fun of it is. Yeah, it is fun. Yeah, everybody has a different twist, you know, and then we decide what we like. And, so oh. we, we are there this week, and then we do have next week set Cottleville. We were out there for, um, oh. I think, our final. was in our final. It was oh. like in the middle last year. We had a great time in Cottleville, so we'll be out there. Is that the one with salmon? That Night, had that that's Knights salmon. of Columbus, oh, all, I think, so right? Yeah. yeah. Did they have salmon at that I, one? I can't remember. I think it, they did. I really liked I don't know why this is not on the list, but when we did that one in Eureka, I thought Eureka oh, was, was a lot tasty. of fun, too. There were a lot of yeah. people at that one. So we'll see. We, you know, You're right. That was We'll huge. see. Trisha's in charge of putting all huge. these together, and we'll certainly keep you posted on the rest of the schedule. But um, we'll be out there tomorrow. John Lamping, Jeff Smith, two former state senators, an A-list roundtable panel, nothing but the best for the fish fries. Jane will be there, and Jane's going to hang out for the whole show. And then in the 5 o'clock hour, and this just happened to fall in my lap. I don't know why I didn't think about it in the first place. George Gray texted me yesterday from The Price is Right. He's coming in town to see Mama May. His mom lives here in St. Louis. George, strong St. Louis ties. He visits with us on this show in the form of a great game, which rivals The Price is Right, called the price is wrong, Mark, right? Yeah. yeah. And sometimes um, we get together, and this is what we're going to do tomorrow. We'll, um, you know, bid on these items from their, their real items from Facebook Marketplace. Sometimes we get it right. Sometimes, yeah, sometimes we don't. We hear the little horn from the price is yeah. right, yeah. and we don't get sued by CBS for using that, but no. we use it anyway. Mm-mm. But George is a lot of fun, so we'll catch up with him tomorrow in the 5 o'clock hour. I got John Morowski rescheduled for tonight with Real Clear. And this is uh, another in a series of pieces focusing on how medical schools have gone woke beyond anybody's comprehension. It's just a bunch of nonsense, but we'll get with John a little bit later. Chris Clem is back with us. He was fantastic a few weeks ago, retired chief border patrol agent. He was a border patrol agent for 27 years. His thoughts, I haven't had a chance to talk to him about the border bill and some other things we thought we'd catch back up, especially since this is an ongoing crisis, which is not really getting a whole lot better. Chris, how are you this afternoon? I'm doing great. Um, I'm glad to be back in Arizona. I was doing some traveling, but uh, 
happy to be on the phone with you. Well, let me ask you, because we spoke before the border bill was passed in the Senate, before it got shot down, you know, in the House. There, were, there was a lot of criticism, obviously, on the part of Republicans. Mike Johnson, the speaker, said, no, it's DOA. But, of course, you had the, the group that represents the border agents that said this is better than nothing. So I'm curious about your position on that particular bill, what it would have done, and should we have looked at that a little closer? Well, you know, what i got to say is uh, the House put a bill up over seven months ago, and the first bill talked about border security. You know, building the wall, port hardening, border technology was about security. This Senate bill, which I'm glad it was dead on arrival, and I'm going to preface this by I have nothing but respect for Senator Lankford. Uh, I was disappointed that this bill got away from him somehow. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, when you start a bill with uh, a, a number, like a cap, like if it gets to this many vaccines or if we have this much illegal activity, they're curious about it. I, I, I thought that was just ridiculous that lawmakers would even, you know, even if it was not their intention to put a number in there, that then we would get serious about it. That's ridiculous. I'm glad it got stopped. Um, I know that there was language in there about mandatory detention for single adults. And I think that's what was exciting to the Border Patrol. Problem is, it's not what's in it, it's what's not in it. How long is that mandatory detention? Is that for two or three days? Is that till the authority given to the secretary gives a, a, an easier uh, uh, asylum you know, process? So there, there was a lot of unknowns. But if it slowed it down, you can see where the Border Patrol Union would be happy. The only thing I really thought strongly about that Senate bill was increasing the ICE detention capabilities, going to at least 50,000 beds a day, which was important because that at least gets the question and the conversation going about detention and consequences. But the bill in its entirety, I thought, was uh, was a processing efficiency bill, not a border security bill. Okay, let me piggyback off that just a little bit. When you're talking about the ICE detention facilities and that 50,000 number, explain that a little bit more. Yeah, so ICE gets funded what they call their average daily population, which is around 20-something thousand a day right now. At one point, it was up to 30-something thousand a day and even closer to 50,000 a day. And that allows the immigration enforcement continuum to work. In In other words, Border Patrol catches you, you get processed for removal proceedings, and you get placed into detention uh, by ICE. Now, there are some exceptions. Obviously, unaccompanied children go to Health and Human Services, and family units don't get detained. So this would really be about single adults. And that is very beneficial to slowing a flow down. And that was the one thing I thought was positive about this bill, and that can't be lost in future considerations. Okay is we have to have detention. So when you talked about mandatory detention, um, is the opposite of that mandatory release? I mean, what is there a middle ground there? Well, yeah. So if, if there's no room, like, okay, for example, if they say all suspected terrorists are mandatory, will be detained, right, which is the case, they're not going to be released to the public. They're not going to be released to the non-government organizations. So there's a mandatory detention. Now, how long is a different story? And and, and so if we had room for ICE, 
to detain people. We put everybody in detention until they had their hearing. Unfortunately, we don't have the the capability for that because this administration did away with um, the funding for the ICE detention centers at their maximum capacity and also did away with private contracted facilities, which is where we made up a lot of the uh, the room was contracting with uh, private facilities to detain our immigration cases. So, yeah, detention is a consequence. If you know that you're going to go to jail, jail if you commit a crime, you, know, you may think twice about committing a crime. Same thing when it comes to entering illegally. You know, so. All right, so uh, Chris Clem is here, retired Border Patrol agent. A couple weeks ago, I saw, maybe even a week ago, Bill Malusian had tweeted something out on Fox with a bunch of guys that were sinking through a hole. I think this was down closer to um, to San Diego in California. And then, you know, he shows another video where he refers to the incident from a few weeks earlier. <clears throat> the hole is still there. You know, immigrants are coming through it at an alarming rate. Why can't you play? It was like a little hole in this area. I don't even know if you know specifically what I'm talking about. Why can't you plug the damn hole? Yeah. You know, I, I, you know I'll be honest with you. I, uh, I think Bill does a great job. I love following him. But he puts so much out there. Sometimes I just don't see it all. But I know what, he's, what you're talking about. That would, that would make sense, right? But here's the deal. Um, there, is, there is, like, certain policies and regulations about the wall construction and how we do things like that. It does not make sense. And I would tell you right now, if that was happening on my watch, I'd be plugging it until somebody told me not to. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, so so I, I know that there are contracts and there's certain things about how we can repair stuff. I don't know. It doesn't make sense. We had for the longest time until we went into really big wall construction contracts, we had a border fence crew, like our agents who were welders by trade. That's what they would do. It would be a fence crew. They would go out there and find where these holes were. And they patch. Now it's all about contracts, and we can't do that or we violate the contract. It just doesn't make sense. I agree with you. Put some tack weld something in there until you can get the contractor in place to slow it down. But, again, there, there's this weird government contracting on that that, again, not very pragmatic, but that's how it was designed. Hey, Chris, I know you've been shedding light. We talked about this last time, and I, I think this is a significant part of the story that gets undercovered, not by Bill Malusian, because he points it out all the time, but these Chinese nationals that continue to, yeah. to flood in. What, what in the hell is going on with that? What do you know? Well, what I can tell you is there's been over 20,000 since October 1, when this fiscal year started. Uh, a lot of them are all single adults. I think there's, it's probably, the best of my rec- uh, recollection, about 60% male, 40% female, so they're not all males. Um, and they are that 18 to 45-year-old range. Um, they're coming in just like all the other migrants, coming into Mexico and coming up north uh, into uh, to our southern border. Um, just the other day, San Diego had like uh, 260 Chinese nationals coming in there. So, you know, they're, they're all going to be, you know, vetted to the, the, uh, the, the, to the extent possible. But... And that's, that's very alarming when we know we have this geopolitical foe in China and all the things that they're trying to do. It, it should be very concerning that we've had 20,000 Chinese nationals come into our country. Uh, and, you know, I don't believe they're all being detained. 
Yeah, well, that would be a concern. Look, I had um, I, I don't remember off the top of my head what the bill that got shot down would have done with asylum claims. But let me ask this question. I meant to ask this last time. What determines an asylum claim and whether or not it's legitimate? And I guess maybe the follow up would be what should determine an asylum claim? Because, look, we, we know and I think the um, some of the folks a few weeks ago when this was all happening, were trying to make claims about, you know, what happened with uh, with Cuba and hitting folks like Rubio and others that have ties to Cuban. Well, I think that there were legitimate asylum claims from Fidel Castro's regime, right? That's not what we're dealing with here. Right. So what, what you're dealing with is, first of all, an economic migrant who is using the claim of fear of return to their country to make a defensive asylum claim so they don't get deported. But to get asylum, and, I, and I'm, it's not, I'm not going to recall it perfectly. That's okay. But you have, you have to be basically persecuted for belonging to a specific you know, political group. In other words, maybe you're the opposition party and you're a, a high-ranking person. Um, religion, some kind of sex or gender, you know, uh, uh, group, you know, and, and, and again, if I may have just said it, religious. I mean, it's very, very specific on like three or four different categories that if you're being persecuted, in other words, you're not, you're going to get thrown in jail because you practice a certain religion or you uh, claim this type of sexual orientation or you are a high-ranking member of a political opponent and you're going to get thrown in jail or, or, or killed. Living in a bad neighborhood, getting beat up every day because you won't pay ransom to a gang is terrible, but that's not asylum. You know, they're, they're, it, it, and so, in, and then again, back to that, it's a very high bar. And if you are really fleeing because of persecution, you claim it in the first place that you can seek refuge, which isn't through seven different countries until you make it to the United States. So that's that's one area. But under this bill that the Senate was proposing, it gave a lot more latitude to the secretary to kind of establish the merits of asylum. And, well, under this secretary, we know that they have allowed so many people to come in under these false pretenses of asylum that I don't think it was going to aid in, in shutting the flow down, I think it would only encourage because he was going to be in charge of dictating that bar. And it shouldn't be the Secretary of Homeland Security. It should be a law reestablished or established by our Congress who makes the legislation, yeah. not, not, not a bureaucrat and appointed uh, 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 secretary. I'm, a, I'm with and you so, on that one. Yeah. And, and one more thing on this secretary, too, just for, for your audience. He was the director of Citizenship and Immigration Services during Obama's first term. He was the deputy secretary of Homeland Security under Obama's second term under Vice President Biden. And he has been the Homeland Security secretary for three of the last four years. So I laugh when he says the system is broken. He was directly in charge of the system for, what is that, eight yeah, 11 yeah. years. That's an outstanding so, point. He is the system, right, Chris? He is the system. So I I used to think that this guy could be the right man for the job, but he has proven time and time again that he has not been standing up to what I think America wants, but I think he's doing well with whoever his boss is. You know, oh, yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah, he, he, is, he has been the system for 11 years. Chris, awesome perspective. We really appreciate it. Chris Clem, thank you so much. We'll have you back. You have a great weekend. You do the same. Thank you.
He is just outstanding, and he's got so much experience down on the border. And let me just kind of share this, and this probably won't surprise people when you hear details here. Newly uncovered emails between the Department of Homeland Security and reporters show that the agency tasked with protecting the U.S. border and domestic security admitted that it is not tracking illegal immigrants after their release from federal custody into the interior of the country. Now, this doesn't surprise me because, you know, you think about it. How do you track all these people? But the emails from Protect the Public's Trust, they did a FOIA request. That's a Freedom of Information Act request. Um, One DHS official told reporters off the record, a Washington Post reporter off the record, this is what they discovered, that he could not say how many immigrants are settling in northern states via border state busing programs because the agency does not track those released from their custody. So the um, one email that they reviewed was, are more people deciding to settle in D.C., New York, or more recently Chicago as a result of the program where they might have previously been inclined to remain in Texas or Arizona? Off the record, the answer was, that's hard for us to say because they're getting on those buses after they're already out of our custody. Now, I don't think this is necessarily um, groundbreaking because I think we kind of assumed this anyway. Well, and we knew it, but they said anecdotally, this is also in the email, what I hear from reporters, it does not appear that the world is, I'm sorry, it doesn't appear that the word is spreading and that they're looking for those buses for free transportation. I've also heard many people are getting off along the way. So they're using the buses for as long as it is convenient, but again, they're out of the custody by then. It's hard for us to be able to answer that. And there's all kinds of email you know, evidence here. But again, I don't know that that's necessarily uh, huge breaking news, only because, yeah, that's part of the problem here yeah. is that these people are being spread all throughout the country. And, you know, the Chinese nationals in particular, that, that is I still think that's an uncovered aspect of this, as uh, I think Chris agreed. Here's something else that I wanted to toss in here before we have John Morosky from Real Clear uh, Investigations on. Um, there is a uh, news like one of the alternative news sites out there called Puck. And Dylan Byers is the guy you might have heard uh, of him that's, you know, Put Puck together. I can't read you everything from Puck because it's beyond the paywall, and I've paid for enough things. But here's what I have for you because Ed Morrissey was kind enough to break some of this down on hotair.com. So Dylan Byers said this. This week I surveyed. This is another one of those things that you're not going to be shocked by. It's one of those things, Sue, that I think most people listening right now will say, yeah, duh, we knew this. But it's sort of, you know— revealing in and of itself. This week, Dylan says, I surveyed members of the White House press corps, reporters, on-air correspondents, photographers, etc. And they all emphasized that the symptoms of Biden's age had become more noticeable in recent months and a frequent discussion topic at the desks behind the Brady briefing room. Anyone who covers this White House knows he's showing the signs of his age. He whispers, he shuffles, he misremembers. That's what one House uh, White House reporter told uh, Puck. Again, these are all anonymous. Anyone with an elderly parent knows what this is. That's another quote. So since the beginning of the term, many White House journalists have reported on or alluded to concerns surrounding Biden's age in often gentle or euphemistic ways. Nevertheless, several of the journalists I spoke with, Byers says, said that the true significance and importance of that issue, as they observed it, was not reflected in the coverage, (laughs) you think, often due to the sense that it was sensitive or unseemly or because there was no obvious evidence that it affected his performance as president beyond optics. Now, I want to address that because I've said this many, many times, Sue, and you will remember 
that when we aired these sound bites of the president, or maybe it's the image of him falling off the bicycle, he is insulated from that by the legacy media. Oh, for now, sure. You know, in fairness, it's not necessarily a story if if somebody just misspeaks or misremembers. But True. when it does become a pattern, then it becomes a story. So they admit to uh, Dylan Byers, yeah, we probably should have covered that. But now, and you saw this happening a week ago. Once that Robert Hur report came out, and by the way, he's going to testify publicly on March 12th. We found that out, that out this afternoon, so that should be interesting. But once the report came out, it's not just Peter Ducey that's asking the questions in the press room, right? KJP, I think just a day or two before that was like, I'm not going to even entertain that. Well, then it was Ducey, and then it was somebody else, and then it was somebody else. Then it was a New York Times yeah. columnist. Then it was another New York Finally. Times columnist. Right. Now, what that means in the end, but Dylan Byers kind of um, breaks it down this way. You know, obviously, one of the reasoning, the the rationales that the reporters have, well, it hasn't really affected his performance. We see that he's doing these things, but we can trust that he's still being, you know, the president leading. But they also admitted that they leave this unsaid because they didn't want to ruin their relationship with the White House. But being the person that speaks up, one of the quotes is, it was something that felt indelicate to talk about, one member of the White House press corps told me. In retrospect... (laughs) This is nice to have in retrospect. In retrospect, some journalists felt like it probably warranted more coverage. The amount of time we spent talking about it versus the time we spent reporting on it was not the same. There should have been tougher, more scrutinizing coverage of his age earlier. On the roundtable last week, someone brought this up in relation to uh, President Reagan when he was in president, you know, in, in the second term and was declining. Should that have been reported on more? I would say yes, it probably should have been. Now, we didn't have public, you know, or social media back then, and they were trying to protect their relationships as well. Leslie Stahl in particular with a with a 60 Minutes piece that she wasn't sure that she should push out there. But I thought that that was interesting that now, oh, yeah, we've kind of talked about this when we're having snacks before and after the briefing, but maybe the American public should know what we've been witnessing for all these months. Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. All-star closer, Kenley Jansen, we have a question. What's the best podcast of all time? Baseball isn't boring, baby. I'm Rob Bradford, and every single day I'm sitting down with the biggest names to show you this great game is the greatest game. It's my podcast. It's my passion. It's a cause I started more than two years ago and is now the most prolific national daily baseball pod there is. Another fact, so jump aboard the B.I.B. Express. Follow and listen to Baseball Isn't Boring, presented by Wasabi Hot Cloud Storage on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. First part of the show today was um, focused on the Fonnie Willis testimony down in Georgia. That very well might be featured in Audio Cut of the Day, which is coming up. Don't forget tomorrow, first Fish Fry Friday out at Incarnate Word Parish off of Olive in Chesterfield. We hope to see you there. We're doing the roundtable there live in the 3 o'clock hour. The Fish Fry officially starts at 4, so... I think they will open the doors and let you come in and kind of take a peek if you'd like to get there early. Former Senators uh, John Lamping and Jeff Smith on the panel with Jane, and Jane's going to hang out. Plus, 
Our good friend George Gray from The Price is Right will be in town to visit Mama May, his mom, who lives here. We're going to play this outstanding game called The Price is Wrong in the 5 o'clock hour. We have a lot of fun with that. Just as a, uh, a programming note, I will not be here. We will not be here on Monday afternoon. The show is off for President's Day. We're going to have a best of segment. However, I agreed to allow my holiday to be robbed from me, Sue, because I'm filling in for Brian Kilmeade on his nationally syndicated that show. That is so exciting, Which I Mark, believe airs right deal. here on 97.1 FM Talk, yes, right? Yes, indeed it does. <laughs> so that's on Monday morning. So I have to, man, I haven't gotten up early in a while. I might have to get up at like 6 in the morning. Oh, stop. <laughs> I John, can't even. John Morowski is back with us from Real Clear Investigations this afternoon. John, what's your wake-up time? Do you get up early? Um. Yeah, I get up early sometimes. Do you? I except like except when I don't. I do not like getting up early, and like to me, anything before seven thirty is kind of early. So we'll see how I how we go with that. Look, I I apologize first and foremost for yesterday because I wanted to have you on, but we had all this stuff in Kansas City, which was, you know, just awful. But you you wrote a piece, and I want you to introduce the audience to this lovely woman named Arlene Geronimus, and I love the picture that's in the piece here. And, and this plays into a lot of the woke ideology stuff that I've talked about before, and certainly you and I have talked about. But this is an interesting lesson in how some of this stuff kind of spreads like COVID, right? Yeah, it's uh, uh, Arlene Geronimus is a public health researcher. And back in the 80s, she started develop, She started noticing uh, there was a lot of there was this uh, outcry back in the 80s about this ghetto pathology of black people, black kids, basically teenagers having children. Uh, so um, I believe Jesse Jackson called it babies having babies. Right. And she started doing research and she came up with this counterintuitive insight that the reason um, inner city uh, black kids um, were having kids so young is because people have kids in the optimal age of health. Uh, that's when they typically, and for the middle class, that's in your 20s, uh, because that's when your health peaks, right? You're in your 20s, even in your early 30s. For uh, black people living in ghettos, it was much earlier because they start aging much faster. They could see that uh, their aunts and their sisters and their mothers, the people around them were aging faster, getting sick. And so it's almost like an instinct to have babies younger. And they were having babies in, in adolescence. It was, a, it, was a, it was a sort of intuitive but rational decision. And it wasn't basically a pathology, but it was a survival mechanism. It was an adaptation. Uh, and that's how her... Uh, theory developed. And then she noticed that black women, even in the middle class, when they were upper middle class and they were upwardly mobile, they still uh, deteriorated. Their health deteriorated uh, much earlier than white women in the middle class. And so she expanded the theory and she came up with this idea of weathering. Weathering is just another word for premature aging and premature death. And she ultimately came up with a theory that it's basically being a minority in a white dominant society it is so stressful for black people it is essentially like being chased by a cheetah and facing uh being basically mauled to death every day uh that's how difficult it is she uses that cheetah analogy all the time very common analogy for her that and so you know and I wanted to I was thinking about this and I wanted to just sort of give readers an idea like why do people why are people – this theory is totally dystopian, but why are people attracted to it? What, what makes people like this theory? And we should point out too, John, that you, you know, this goes back to like the mid-'80s, and it didn't get a lot of attention, but then it started getting traction later, right? She was actually criticized by um, uh, public health groups and by – I forget the name, but they were like prominent nonprofits were criticizing her for excusing uh, irresponsibility. And she was saying – 
it's not irresponsibility. You're applying white middle class values to people living in completely different circumstances. And they're living under environmental and cultural constraints that make it uh, rational for them to have children earlier. So, uh, and she was saying it's not normal for people to have babies. You know, when you, when, it's, when you have babies at the age at which you have children depends on the culture. And she, to some degree from anthropology, we know that she's right. In a lot of, you know, pre-industrial cultures, you achieve, uh, you attain adulthood at age 13. And you start having babies, you know, 14, 15, 16. That's, that's not, you know, uh, in the prairies, in, uh, you know, in small villages and, you know, in societies that are pre-industrial, um, people do have babies much younger and they die when they're 35. Right. So everything is sped up. And so she's saying that for these kids living in these urban inner city ghettos, everything is just sped up. And so they have to move faster to get to achieve their optimal health. And so. It, but she was criticized uh, prof- profoundly. She was really uh, kind of retreated into her research. She, it was, she was really kind of shocked by how much criticism she got. But over time, the more audacious her theory became, the more radical it became, the more fashionable it became. So, the, so you know, at the early stages, her theory seems to make a kind of sense. But, you know, at this point, her theory is that uh, that being black in a white society is to face uh, cultural oppression, microaggressions, existential threats, identity management, uh, code switching. She uses a lot of these ac- academic yeah, words. Yeah, she calls like she she even describes American society. You write about this as an onslaught of microaggressions, othering, existential insults, daily indignities, voice erasure. I mean, she even kind of makes this seem, and she estimates that racism and weathering has caused 2.7 million excess black deaths in the U.S. between 1970 and 2004, basically calling that genocidal. Well, she doesn't use the word genocidal, but I'm pointing out that it is of genocidal proportions to use those kinds of numbers. Um, she also had a paper in 2015 where she, uh, she and her co-authors described American society as, quote, the surround, unquote, meaning that it is surrounds people with oppressive forces and constantly barrages them with messaging and subliminal messaging about how to conform to certain ideas to which they can never conform, sets them up to, for failure and makes them feel terrible all day long. And these messages are called the phantasms. So it's almost like a science fiction script. So these phantasms are con- like photon torpedoes that are constantly being fired at people, constantly sending in messages of worthlessness and inadequacy all day long, nonstop, until they br- it breaks down. And, and the stress that it causes, it's the stress that it causes that then makes sure that causes cellular damage to your body. That's what causes the premature aging. It's actually cellular damage. So it's a kind of bodily onslaught, right? right? It's essentially kind of subliminal lynching. And this is one of my favorite little excerpts here. She says, exercise can be beneficial, but a black person considering taking a run will be unlikely to forget that Ahmaud Arbery was shot to death while jogging because he was black. You know, referencing what happened in Georgia. And how can a black person relax into restorative sleep knowing Breonna Taylor was shot to death by police as she slept in her own apartment? So this goes on and on and on. And as you point out, like the New York Times called this person an icon. Where is she right now? Is she at the University of Michigan? Yeah, she's at the University of Michigan. She's a superstar, you know, academic uh, in public health, widely known. Um, And, you know, she's published over 130 papers and um, she got a lot of favorable coverage in, you know, national public radio, uh, The Guardian, The New York Times. Um, You know, she's treated these these theories are treated very uncritically. Um, They're accepted as almost like gospel. And 
You know, and the reason I think people like these theories um, is uh, we can all think of a time when we were in school on the blacktop and we were excluded from an activity and other kids made fun of us or even bullied us. And that feeling that just washes over you, like your neck gets hot, your ears get hot, you feel uh, that feeling of awfulness, just torture. You can't you just want to run home and hide. And so we remember having moments like that. And she's saying that for an African-American, it's like that dawn to dusk. And then they can't even sleep at night because they're just having nightmares about uh, somebody being killed. Um, and, you know, there probably are black people who live in a state of panic because they're constantly exposed to this information. I mean, they believe that there are thousands of police shootings a year. You know, they get yeah, very they're lied to about all these things. Absolutely. Yeah. They don't realize that these are very small numbers. Well, but the other thing that happens here is this, this kind of manifests itself. And, you know, I sit back sometimes and I play this audio. Maybe this is even something you and I have talked about. You got the white coat ceremonies. I remember playing audio from the University of Minnesota where they all gather before they become doctors, these med students, and they have to ba- basically swear a woke Pledge of Allegiance about this. And that's where a lot of this comes from, all this research that took place in the 80s, it seems. Yeah, you know, it started in the 80s, and she wasn't the only one. She's just an example of this kind of, uh, of, of, of research and the trajectory it took and how long. And at the time, at first, um, people were just very dismissive of it, and they ridiculed it. And now it is the established knowledge. It is the established truth of academia, right? There is when she writes her papers and she writes about uh, premature, you know, short uh, life expectancies or chronic diseases, um, she um, never considers, and none of her co- colleagues or anybody doing this kind of research, never considers alternative explanations. The, expl- just, the uh, understanding is that it's always caused by systemic racism uh, and the white supremacist yeah. uh, oppressive culture in which people live. So you can only look at the, the, the sort of the answer to the question is predetermined. Um, and so and there's you know hundreds of these studies. Yeah, just so you know, and Sue, you haven't weighed in on this, but you'll love this because Sue takes care of herself. She's into, you know, health and fitness, certainly eating right. And we talked about this a lot during COVID because one of the things during COVID that never was emphasized is just maybe kind of taking care of yourself and eating right, not being obese. She says healthy aging is a measure not of how well we take care of ourselves, but rather how well society treats and takes care of us. Oh my, Th- That's her position. That's a medical right. Position. So she's a total collectivist. You know, she doesn't. They, you have to remember that sort of postmodernist critical social justice ideology rejects the idea of individualism and individual agency. Yeah. Yeah. The primary uh, core element, like the core element of the universe, is carbon. Right. The core element of social organization, the core unit, is the group is the collective, is the communal group. The individualism is something that was invented by white Europeans in the 1800s, right? And so they just reject that. It doesn't exist. It's never existed. It was only created in a few countries, England, France, basically, pretty much. Um, and other than that, it's, uh, it's just a construct. Uh, and the primary re- unit of reality for human uh, interactions is the collective. Unbelievable. John Awesome research here for Real Clear Investigations. I appreciate coming on. Again, my apologies for canceling last minute last night, but thank you so much, and you have a great week. I don't mind being canceled. It's fun. Thank you very much. Take care. Great stuff (laughs) here. We're wrapping up our time here in the studio this week. Sue, tomorrow we'll be at the Fish Fry at Incarnate Word Parish in Chesterfield off Olive. We hope to see you there. We'll get started at 3 o'clock. Fish Fry officially at 4, but you can swing by and watch the roundtable. We'll have the entire show, including George Gray doing The Price is Wrong, tomorrow night in the 5 o'clock hour. And we will sample some of the 
delicious <laughs> fish. Sue is about to look up the menu, and then our friend Jeannie Sullivan <laughs> sent, sent, it to sent the menu. Gumbo! We yeah, they have, so they have gumbo. fried cod, oh, they have shrimp, uh, shrimp they oh, yeah. have baked tilapia, oh, and then good. this this is really, they have Cajun seafood gumbo, cotton shrimp, <laughs> and they have red beans and rice. I'm very, Yum. very happy about that. So that's all coming up tomorrow night on the show, and we'll have a lot of things to talk about during the roundtable as well. Unfortunately, you know, the, the thing that really sticks out, and I only spent a little bit of time yesterday talking about it, we'll cover it on the roundtable, the um, the woman and her daughter from Chicago who came in for the Drake concert were run over by a hit-and-run driver and killed the other night down just the street from where we sit right now at 18th and Olive. It just, it's just sickening, and that was about a year you know, not quite to the date, but a year ago is when Janae Edmondson lost her legs in that awful crash, which, let's not forget, that was historic in the sense that it led to the, eventually it led to the uh, eradication, if you will, of Kim Gardner in the circuit attorney's office. There was a lot of news today, like a lot of news from different areas. So let's get started on Audio Cut of the Day, and I'll try to cover some of this. Stand by. Playback ready. Now, the Audio Cut of the Day. Well, one thing that happened before I get to cut of the day is that in the uh, New York hush money case, um, the judge denied motions from the Trump team seeking to dismiss the charges against him. So that didn't go very well for Trump. His lawyers were also in Georgia today in Fulton County, where Fonnie Willis is the prosecutor in the election interference case. But there have been improprieties that have been alleged, including an affair that may have taken place before they publicly acknowledged it between Fonnie Willis and one of her prosecutors that she paid who took the stand earlier today, Mr. Wade. Now, this is part of the testimony that we're trying to figure out who paid for what, and where the money came from and whether this was you know, on the up and up. So Fonnie Willis went with Mr. Wade to a birthday trip that she apparently paid for to Belize, Mexico. Right now, he put it on his credit card originally. She paid him back. She didn't pay him back with Venmo. She didn't write him a check. She paid him apparently in cash. Miss Willis uh, paid you in cash all the money for the entire trip. It was a gift for you for your birthday, correct? Yes, sir. And I'm sure you probably have the deposit slips where you took the cash and deposited the cash into your account, don't you? I did not deposit the cash in my account. You don't have a single solitary deposit slip to corroborate or support any of your allegations that you were paid by Mrs. Willis in cash, do you? No, sir. Not a single solitary one. Not a one. Fonnie Willis testified, I paid him in cash because my dad taught me to have six months cash in my house, and that's what I did. There's no receipts or anything. Mr. Wade said, yeah, I, you know, she paid me back in cash. I don't have any deposit slips. But here's the legal issue. The Trump team, which is trying to get Fonnie Willis disqualified from this election interference case, they cannot prove that they're lying, right? They, they they can try. Some people do cash, uh, even no if doubt. It's a lot. But we're talking about come on, really? I know. I'm In just the saying. age of Venmo, so here is Fonnie Willis being somewhat defiant today. I've given him cash only a few times in life, probably four. Okay. Probably the most money I've ever handed him is twenty five hundred dollars. You have no proof of any reimbursement for any of these things because it was all cash, right? The testimony of one witness is enough to prove a fact. The only money you've ever given him outside of a contract is cash. I didn't give him money in a contract, so that was cute. 
but I didn't give him money outside, uh, in a contract. His money back. I don't need anybody to foot my bills. The only man who's ever foot my bills completely is my daddy. All right. So uh, this is also what she said. I mean, she tried to make this in, you know, she was being defiant, obviously, about Trump. You're confused. You think I'm on trial. These people are on trial for trying to steal an election in 2020. I'm not on trial, no matter how hard you try to put me on trial. It is a lie. It is a lie. Ms. Well, Mr. Sena, thank you. We're going to take five minutes. By the way, I think the judge in this case did a really good job today because he was clipping both sides. I'm just going to tell you, Sue, I think that the, um, you know, my takeaway is that they're full of crap if they want people to believe this story, but there's no way to prove it. So I don't think the judge is going to disqualify her based on what I heard today. We'll talk about it more on the roundtable tomorrow. We'll see you at the fish fry. Get more at 971talk.com. All-star closer, Kenley Jansen, we have a question. What's the best podcast of all time? Baseball isn't boring, baby. I'm Rob Bradford, and every single day I'm sitting down with the biggest names to show you this great game is the greatest game. It's my podcast. It's my passion. It's a cause I started more than two years ago and is now the most prolific national daily baseball pod there is. Another fact. So jump aboard the B.I.B. Express. Follow and listen to Baseball Isn't Boring, presented by Wasabi Hot Cloud Storage on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.